This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. This is The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Saturday, October the 7th, 2023, Hamas militants launched an unprecedented attack on Israel by land, sea, and air. The word unprecedented just barely scratches the surface. Israeli intelligence saw no warning signs. The surprise assault by Hamas was enormous, ruthless, and barbaric. Multitudes of Israeli citizens and military personnel are now dead. Hostages have been taken, their lives threatened with execution to be streamed live unless concessions are made by Israel. We're hearing shocking reports of babies and the elderly being butchered, slaughtered by Hamas. Terrifying? Yes. Outcome unknown? Yes. Lives lost in the thousands? Yes. It is the deadliest attack in Israel's history. Roz Magani is a world-renowned Canadian makeup artist who, at the height of her career, decided to leave Toronto and move to Jerusalem. She was drawn by Israel's culture, its people, its landscape, its history, and by her faith. She joins us now on the feed. Roz, first and foremost, are you safe? Yes. Currently, we are safe. And what does that mean? You're living in Jerusalem. Where are you and what are you hearing around you? So I live in downtown Jerusalem, which is about 15 or 20 minutes from the old city, which is where the Western Wall is. Um, and normally it's, it's very busy here. I live next to the market, which is very popular. Everyone comes here, the tourists, everyone. Um, it's very, very quiet. Not a lot of people out. Schools are closed. Gatherings, I think, of uh, 30 people or less, or maybe even less than that now. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very eerily quiet when you go out on the street. And you go out on the street, you know, just to run out and get a few groceries or something. I mean, we've run out of, there's, food is not on the shelves. Uh, you can't find toilet paper anywhere. They ran out of water. It's a, it's a, it's a critical situation overall. Roz, Jerusalem is just about 73 kilometers from Ashkelon, which was destroyed a couple of days ago. Are you concerned that the fighting and the bombing and the shelling is coming ever closer to where you live? Well, we had we had a bomb drop, uh, rockets drop uh, the day before, uh, just at Beitar uh, Elite, which is maybe, you know, 15 minutes from here. And there, I'm not sure if there was casualties. I don't know if someone's died yet. There was two casualties. And my girlfriend was there. They were at a funeral. And they, they, they bombed a school right next to the cemetery. So what kind of protection is there for you in Jerusalem? Are you seeing uh, an, an increase in military? How do you feel protected? 100% there's an increase of police presence, military everywhere. Um, that's number one. Number two, we have protocols um, and everyone in a newer building has their own safe room within their own residence, right? Within their own apartment. Um, there are some older buildings where they don't even have one. The bomb shelter is outside of the building and you have to hunker down in a stairwell because you don't have time to get to the bomb shelter necessarily. And um, the only reason my father is able to go to synagogue is that our synagogue is 20 meters from us in the courtyard and the synagogue always has been and is a bomb shelter for the building. How are you alerted to the fact that there is incoming fire? So the sirens go off 
and you have until the siren stops to be able to get to a safe place. So it's usually about a minute in our neighborhood, a uh, minute and 20 seconds to be able to get to your safe room, seal up the, uh, the window with the, the, these incredible shutters that they have, they're metal and you, I mean, it's difficult to close them even. I don't know how an elder, elderly person could even manage on their own with that. And then to close the door again, it's very, it's very tough to close the door. Um, and then you hunker down and you wait until the sirens stop. Now, when the sirens stop, you are, you're advised to wait five to 10 minutes because what happens is if there's an interception of the iron dome, if you're lucky and it's intercepted, um, within five or 10 minutes of that alarm, first of all, you're gonna hear a boom. You're gonna feel something, a rumbling, even if it's you know further away from you, as you said, um, and then there's shrapnel that will fall. So they want everyone to stay in place in their rooms and bunkers and, and bomb shelters until 10 minutes. There's no go ahead, clear, you can come out of your room now. You just have to wait the 10 minutes. Roz, can you take us back to October the 7th, the day that this incredibly devastating and, and shocking surprise attack by Hamas took place? What happened to you and people around you and those that you know in Jerusalem? What walk us through that day for you. Now, for us, we are quite a, we are quite a distance from Sterot, um, which was where all the action started, uh, this horrific event, um, and we're very blessed in that regard. That being said, there was uh, there was rockets fired at uh, eight fifteen. I was going to send my father down to the synagogue a couple of minutes ahead of me, as I normally do. And we were running a little bit late. And I said to him, you know what? Just stay with me. We'll go together, which I never do. And um, literally, as we were going to walk out the door, uh, two minutes later, the sirens went. We went into our safe room, and this was 8.15. And we did the protocol. We waited. Uh, and then I did, took a peek out the window. I saw some people walking outside going to synagogue. So I was like, okay, we'll go to synagogue. We're going to be in a bomb shelter anyways, if there's more problems. So we uh, went into the, into the synagogue, which is a bomb shelter, and we proceeded with the service. And there wasn't enough space for the women inside because it was the holiday. You have to understand, this, this was Simchas Torah, which was the culmination of all the holy days that we've had for the past three weeks, from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to Sukkot. And this was the final day. And it's a very, very joyful day. It's incredibly joyful. And you take out all your Torahs and you dance with them each time. It's a very long service also, exceptionally long. So we're there and the women are sitting outside and the way we hear the service is these bomb uh, shutters for the one window in this bomb shelter are open. It's on the ground level. So we had some chairs set up outside. And of course, not shortly after, the sirens go again. And we're in the service and the service is proceeding and we scurry into the bomb shelter and we wait there again until we get the all clear 10 minutes after we come back. Now, I have to tell you, even in the bomb shelter, and even though these bombs were a little bit, these rockets landed a little bit further distance away or were intercepted, I don't remember if all of them were in intercepted even, um, you felt it. You felt the vibrations. You feel the rumbling. It, it's it's very very disconcerting, even though it's not right next to you. 
And um, so we went in and out, I think about three, four or five times we did this consecutively and it was coming more often and more often and more often until finally um, one of the guys said, you know what, just come in and stay in. This is not safe because it was escalating and it wasn't going, you know, wasn't stopping. And so we went in and we did that and then it seemed to stop by about noon by us. But I have to tell you that in spite of this was happening, and this is an indication of the Jewish people and the Israelis, we kept going with the service. We kept singing, we kept dancing, we kept celebrating all that we have. Ross, by the time this interview airs, it will have been one week from this, this catastrophic attack by Hamas. One week. When you started to hear information about what had happened, how many thousands of people have died, hostages have been taken, brutality beyond belief. What went through your mind? Well, first of all, it's horribly tragic. It's, it's, it's beyond what anyone, and I think we can all agree on this, in any society could fathom or imagine the, the scope of this operation that they did. Um, and the the evil, the pure evil of this, um, and the numbers. But I have to tell you, on the one hand, we're in shock. On the other hand, I'm kind of not, because I've been telling the world, we've been telling the world that this is Hamas, and this is what their capabilities are, and it was only a matter of time that they all collaborated, Hezbollah, Iran, everyone and that's what we're seeing right now because it's on all fronts we've got it in lebanon we, we just had rocket fire and bombs from syria this afternoon um and and not only that but as horrifying as it is that they're firing rockets the the fact that they infiltrated on foot is terrifying as well i just i get messages on my phone all the time there's a, a certain app that we have now to to keep us updated about everything that's going on in the country and I just got a message this afternoon. You have to make sure you lock all your doors at all times because these terrorists are going around dressing up as Orthodox Jews and, and going to people's doors and, and want them to open their doors. Either, either they're asking for uh, charity or something. I don't know what their story is. You know, they have a family, they have 10 kids, they need money. And then they're, they're trying to abduct people. And they did that even in, um, they did that in the first scenario when, and we found out on Saturday, um, there happens to be a security guard, I think he's an Arab Christian, in the building next to me in, in the courtyard. And so everyone was going over to him because we don't, we're offline for the Sabbath and for holidays. We had no clue what was going on. We had no access to access what was going on. And that partly was part of the issue also with you know, communication for people in general, because you're not supposed to go online unless it's a life risk not to, you know, if you have someone that's in life risk, then of course you can use whatever uh, electronics and devices to, to save life and everything else. So we went over to the security guard and the first news that we heard was around 10, 11 o'clock. He was saying how they infiltrated and they took over the police station in steroid and the army base. And what they did was they slaughtered all these officers in their sleep, in their beds, and then changed into their uniforms. 
and then started to go door to door. And that's how they got people out. Roz, I got to ask you, are you are you going to leave Jerusalem? The Canadian government has said that they were organizing flights to get Canadians, either who are visiting Israel or are residents of Israel, out of Israel. They're picking them up in Tel Aviv, taking them to Athens, and then bringing them back to Canada. Are you prepared to leave? Do you want to leave? Do you need to leave? That's an unequivocal no. Absolutely not. I am Israeli. I I am a, a dual citizen, Canadian and Israeli. I signed up for this. I know what this is about. I knew what this is about. I was in Israel during the Gulf War in 1991. Um, you know, there's a certain level of, of fear, but not fear, only because it's the unknown. But ultimately, I am committed to be here. And I think if you speak to a lot of people, they will tell you the same answer. Um, I feel very safe here. I feel I feel as safe here as anywhere else in the world, in spite of the fact that we're in a war. Um, and I always have. So call me crazy, um, but I am committed, and uh, we need all the support we can have from here. And uh, however I can do whatever I can do on my part here, you know that's that's going to be, you know, my goal to help however I can. Roz, I have to thank you so much. And I will be thinking of you 24-7, your father, your son, all of whom are in Israel right now. And we will talk again. And please, please be safe. We will. Thank you so much, Anne. Glenn Perkins is next with reaction from Thornhill MP Melissa Lansman. It's been a week since the surprise attack by Hamas terrorists on Israel. The number of dead on both sides is into the thousands. Canadians who attended a music festival in southern Israel are among the victims. Melissa Lansman is the MP for Thornhill. I asked her for her reaction. Well, look, I, I mean, uh, my reaction is similar to many in our very community. The senseless violence, the scale of, of the number of dead, those injured hostage situations, and of course the hate celebrations over the brutal slaughter of Jews out in the open is a frankly a, a, a product of a a world that I think sanitizes the, the brutality of terrorism and, and dehumanizes uh, Israel. We know that Canadians are among the dead. As the days go by and additional bodies are discovered, should we be preparing ourselves for news that more Canadians were killed? Look, I, I think um, watching what is unfolding there, I think we are bracing ourselves, certainly as Canadians, watching family and, and friends and those close to us dealing with a situation. I think one of our major focuses is making sure that Canadians who are struggling to get responses from global affairs, struggling to get the help that they need in order to get out and make sure that they get to, to safety, making sure that we're exploring all options to deploy more people and resources so that our citizens can get the help that they need. We've seen pro-Israeli rallies, but we're also hearing pro-Palestinian protests that have taken place across the country. What's your thoughts on that? Look, almost as soon as, as word got out that the massacre of Hamas in Israel began, many started to rejoice, and it is very close to home. We've seen these are not pro-Palestinian gatherings. They are pro-terrorist gatherings celebrating the rape, 
the murder, uh, the kidnapping of, of children and even Holocaust survivors. This is not acceptable. Hamas is a terrorist organization. Canada recognizes it as such. And these displays are you know, not only hurtful, they are disgusting and they should not be allowed to proceed anywhere in, uh, in the world. Melissa, it's important to make the distinction between Palestinian people and the terrorist organization Hamas. Well, of course it is, and it's the Palestinian people that are the victims of the brutality of Hamas themselves. There is no question that Canadian politicians and officialdom has condemned the atrocities of the Hamas terrorist organization, and Palestinians suffer at the hands of the chaos and the murder of, uh, of Hamas as well in the Gaza Strip. Israel hasn't seen anything like this since the Yom Kippur War. Well, we've never had, you know, this is a staggering number, but the greatest numbers of Jews killed in one single day since the Holocaust happened this weekend. And the, the number of dead is, you know, at least 900, 2,200 injured, um, likely over 100, 150 taken hostage. The carnage continues and the world sits and, and, and watches and the videos that uh, people are, are seeing almost in, in real time are a real shock to anyone. Um, a, a terrorist attack of, of, of this scale is certainly un, uh, unprecedented and it cannot be rationalized and it cannot be justified. There's the threat from Hamas that hostages will be killed if Israel continues the bombing of Gaza. Look, I think that the decision of Israel to defend itself is one that uh, Canada will always support, just as any other country would defend themselves in this case. This is not, the retaliation is, uh, is not something that uh, another sovereign country uh, wouldn't do. And I think that it is incumbent on the Israelis to, uh, to protect their people, to protect their borders, and to eliminate uh, the threat. Unfortunately, this is not going to end anytime soon, is it? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but uh, it looks like our community here in York Region is uh, is bracing itself for some trying days ahead. And uh, I hope that uh, you know, I hope the community stays united and together, and uh, finds ways to uh, to be helpful, whether it's donating to uh, to charities or uh, making sure that support is loud and clear. What are you hearing from people in your riding? Well, certainly uh, the riding that I represent, which is Thornhill, part of York Region, uh, has the largest number of Jewish Canadians. So there's certainly fear in the community on making sure that places of worship and schools are well protected when something happens in the Middle East. You know, anti-Semitism is on the rise. We know that. We know that from uh, two years ago in May, the last time there was major clashes. And, uh, and of course, we're inundated with people trying to get responses on making sure that their loved ones have information and a plan to, uh, to get out. There's a lot of people studying there and a, certainly a lot of people who, uh, who are there um, over the Jewish holidays that we just had for the last month. And uh, we want to make sure that we can get them the information uh, that they need. But uh, certainly there is no shortage of people worried in the community. It's not only here at home, but also the eyes of the world are watching this situation very closely. Thornhill MP Melissa Lansman, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks for having me. The United Jewish Appeal Federation Greater Toronto has issued an emergency appeal for the people of Israel. To help, please go to info at jewishtoronto.com. We'll be right back. Do you have a story idea for the feed? 
Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed as Toronto tries to repair 100-year-old water pipes, crumbling roads and bridges and other essential infrastructure. The city, according to some industry experts, is restricting the number of qualified companies that can bid on these massive projects, therefore eliminating competition, an essential driver when it comes to containing costs. So why should we care? Because we, the taxpayer, are footing the bill. Kevin Brown is the CEO of Cobalt Safety Consulting. He's here to explain the problem and offer solutions. Kevin, welcome to the feed. It's really great to have you with us today. Thank you, Anne. So I I was reading a press release that you put out. So let me read something to our listeners that you have written. Construction industry leaders point to an unfair bidding process that shuts out thousands of highly qualified companies, drastically reducing the competition necessary to foster improved pricing and outcomes for multi-million dollar infrastructure projects. Can you break that down and tell us in, in regular language, civilian language like mine, what I would understand what the problem is? Uh, this is an important issue, and, and, I, and I'll tell you, it actually affects you know affordability and safety in the city of Toronto. This is how I like to frame it for people. If you were installing a pool or renovating your house, would you just go out and get one bid for that? Nope. Or would you want to have open competition, lots of people to choose from, look for the best value? You might even tell one of your bidders, we got another bid. That's just common sense, and yet the city of Toronto right now is kind of restricting that. Can you explain what COR certified companies, so that certificate of recognition, what is that policy about, and where do those who have other certifications, for instance, ISO 45001 certification, where does that leave them? So CORE is a, a Canadian-branded uh, certification for safety, uh, like a safety system. And ISO would be a, a world standard. So everywhere in Canada, CORE is used in different provinces. But if you go outside of Canada, ISO is the world standard. Um, the CORE has been uh, pretty strong here in the province, in, uh, province of Ontario. And the city of Toronto uses that in their language for procurement. So they'll say a company has to be CORE or equivalent. The problem is what's equivalent. So it's the language. They're using a brand name within the actual language of their procurement documents. And that in itself becomes very confusing for, you know, construction companies and CEOs and people that are just looking at the procurement, trying to meet the the methodologies that are established by the city. So what you're seeing is that Toronto, the city of Toronto, is clinging to this rule that exclusively allows core certified companies to bid. You feel effectively eliminating almost 100% of businesses. In the province of Ontario, uh, less than 1% of construction companies have the core certification. So less than 700 companies have that certification. And yet we know there's probably around over 135,000 construction companies. So just based on that, you know, we're talking less than 1% of companies have uh, a core certification. So less than 1% of the people can bid on the Toronto projects. And that that's just going to, if you limit the pool, you're going to raise the cost. And it's just common sense. You know, if it's a small pool, then the prices will go up and the taxpayers are footing those bills. So why is it that Toronto insists on sticking with this rule about core certified companies? I think it's just what they know. 
It's mm. been there for a while. Why change stuff? But um, you know, they they have actually stated that you know, oh, and we accept ISO, but that's kind of new in the system. But it's not clear in the language. So you know, we're advocating to to get the mayor and the city councilors just to go a step further and clear up that language in uh, the Ministry of Labor here in the province of Ontario in 2019, and that's what they call accredited safety systems. And there's I think there's more than five of them out here now. And those systems are what the Ministry of Labor has vetted and said these are accredited systems. And the City of Toronto is sticking with one brand name. So I just want to add a little something about ISO, and you've touched on it. It's an internationally recognized standard of excellence in 168 countries. Wow. Representing best practices in construction, technology, management, and manufacturing. We talk about the Ministry of Labor. That's the provincial level. Let's go down to or over to the municipal level. We have a brand new mayor in Toronto, Olivia Chow. Is she aware, has she been made aware of of this issue, this difference between core and ISO and and why the, the city is sticking to the core rule? I'm not sure if the mayor is aware, but I'm raising the issues now. And these issues need to be brought forward. We need innovation. And we need open competition. And this is an easy fix for the city of Toronto and a good opportunity for the mayor to open up the competition, to help taxpayers. Everything is getting expensive. We can all feel it. We can all see it. So why are we sticking to this old methodology? We, we need fair, open competition. So why should the city of Toronto resident, the taxpayer, why should he or she care? It's slow through costs. Mm-hmm. It's costing companies the money to go out and get these systems, and there's very few companies that can bid, so they're able to push the prices up. Those prices are being absorbed by somebody, and that's the taxpayers. You know, and to be to be honest, safety is important. It needs to be part of the procurement system. Taxpayers are also workers in the city of Toronto, so I think their money should also be getting the best price and safest companies, and and that needs to be done correctly through a proper procurement system. So, Kevin, are you looking to expand the procurement policy when it comes to Toronto, or eliminate it and start from scratch? No. It should be one line in their policy. They can go in and change that, have it done, you know, within the course of a week. It wouldn't take council long to do it. They need to stop any specific brand name, so Core or ISO. I work in both systems, and as a safety professional, I work with Core, I work with ISO, uh, with companies that need it. But Core doesn't fit all companies, and ISO doesn't fit all companies. So companies need to be able to pick the system that best fits their business, best fits their operations, because they have the legal liability for safety. And the city should have clear language, and it'd be simple. You know, Ministry of Labor, um, City of Toronto requires Ministry of Labor accredited systems. And let the Ministry of Labor be the lead on safety. So we're talking about fair competition. I mean, that's what it boils down to, Kevin. Fair competition. Mm. Makes sense to me. Makes And maybe dollars and cents as well. So you conducted an online survey recently. 80% of the respondents support expanding Toronto's procurement policy. Yeah, looking forward to getting the confusion out of the policy language, right? 80% of executives and CEOs that responded to my informal survey and my LinkedIn showed up and said, yes, this needs to change, right? Because they keep running into it. They're trying to do the best things for their companies, and yet the city says, nope, you have to meet this 
particular piece. And that's not the way competition is run. It needs to be fair and it needs to be competitive and we need room for innovation. Safety is always about improvement, right? And if we stick to one thing, that may not be the best thing. We need room in the, in the system for innovations to happen for companies to choose the systems that they need. And that can benefit the companies who are chosen. But let's talk again about the taxpayer. How would an expansion of the procurement policy and greater competition, fair competition, how would it benefit the taxpayer? I mean, it, tangibly, how would they f- see and feel the benefits? And when it comes to competition, you know, the wider the competition, the more people can bid, the better the pricing gets, the more competitive the pricing gets, and that only benefits taxpayers. The city of Toronto has, you know, millions if not billions of dollars of new infrastructure work coming. So we need the best pool. We need the best competition. We need the best prices. Everything is getting expensive. And to tell you the truth, a lot of our companies in construction are small businesses, and these are the backbones of our society. They're the ones that are fixing our curbs and our sidewalks, and they come and fix our water mains and they fix the power, right? These small companies are the ones that struggle with some of these uh, restrictions that the city's putting in, and we need fair, open competition. So I'm advocating for the city of Toronto and councils to just make this correction, make it a fair system. It's simple. Change the language, you know, to uh, city of Toronto accepts or recognizes ministry accredited safety systems. And if the city of Toronto is a world-class city, then we need to be using world-class safety and world-class pro- procurement practices. Why, as the CEO of Cobalt Safety Consulting, why are you in so involved in this? What does your company do? Cobalt Safety Consulting is a, exactly what it sounds like. We are safety consultants. We help clients uh, from everything from safety policies and programs to workplace inspection work to workplace compliance, uh, right up to major accident investigation work. Um, it's my passion. It's my purpose. It's my advocacy. I always look for fair systems, and you know I think safety is very important. The taxpayers in the city of Toronto are also the workers in the city of Toronto, so they deserve good solid workplaces, good reputable companies, and safety. And so I advocate for that. I advocate for worker safety, and I'll advocate for the employer's rights. And I just think it's the right thing to do. Well, thank you for getting your message out here on 105.9 The Region. Very much appreciated and wish you all the best. And I know that our listeners are all ears. How can and where can they go to get more information? Well, they can go to our website, and I will put the article up there. And also, I think there was an article that came out from Canadian Occupational Safety Magazine uh, recently that was talking about this. But ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, the best thing to do is call the city council. Tell them to change the policy. You know, it's the best for, it's the best for Toronto. And your website, Kevin? CobaltCT.ca. Nice and easy. All right. Thank you, Kevin Brown, CEO, Cobalt thank Safety you, Consulting. Thank you. Thank you, Ann. Next on the feed, expectations for employers and employees in 2024 include more than simply salaries. Tina Cortez now with the list of priorities. Employment trends and starting salaries are among the key highlights of the 2024 Salary Guide from Robert Half. Joining the feed with the breakdown is director at Robert Half, Cal Youngworth. Cal, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So top of the list for many workers is compensation. What did your survey show on this front? Yeah, well, it showed that cash is definitely still key. And I think we could probably all wrap our head around the why as high inflation 
kind of continues to squeeze everybody's personal finances, uh, you know, whether that's mortgage payments going up or our grocery bills still being very high, people are telling us that they're really worried about their salaries keeping up with the cost of living. So 35% of respondents actually indicated that if they don't get a pay hike this year, they'll be looking for a new opportunity. And unfortunately, that that may be just because they have to be looking for a new opportunity to, to cover their costs. And is salary information often included in job postings? Should it be? You know what? We definitely encourage organizations to always have the, the information in a posting. I think most times it is. But what happens is individuals will sometimes imp- apply for a position get an initial interview only to find out that the, the position doesn't pay what they require or what they're interested in, and it just ends up being a waste of everybody's time. So, yeah, best practice is definitely to include salaries with every posting. Is it possible for a candidate to negotiate, and then how, how far should they go? I, I think we're, we all have value that we're looking for in terms of the work that we put in with different organizations and on different positions. So absolutely, we encourage a healthy negotiation, but I think you have to be careful. You can't ask for too much, but you know, it's not always just salary. It could be different types of perks that are offered, like flexible work schedules, uh, hybrid schedules, uh, vacation time. So you could definitely negotiate, but it doesn't always have to come back to just salary. I want to circle back with the flexible and the perks, but just before we leave this area about compensation, will companies pay for top talent? Yeah, they're, they're indicating to us that they, they definitely will. Uh, another survey we, we recently did indicated that the majority of managers, uh, up to 92%, have shared that it's difficult to find skilled professionals right now. So what that means is for the right talent, they definitely will pay more. Uh, but organizations are also being careful. Um, there's still a lot of unknown in the economy around the corner. And even though things are relatively healthy right now, they're going to you know, hire strategically. So how do you think companies and those looking for work, how do they walk that fine line and find that balance? Well, you know what? Inflation, I think, is a two-way street. So as individuals, we're all kind of dealing with increased cost of living, but the same goes for organizations. The cost of doing business has gone up as well. So when it comes to offering raises or salary increases, that's not always an easy decision. So organizations, I think, are really zeroing in on their top talent. They're willing to pass on an increase to those individuals that they just simply cannot afford to lose. And then maybe with other individuals, they're, they're making hard decisions and trying to hold the line because, again, costs are affecting everyone and not just the individual. And obviously there are specific requirements for certain positions, but are there those soft skills that companies are looking for and perhaps place more value on now more than ever before? Yeah, you know what, it's always come down to even though someone might be technically qualified for a role, it still comes down to communication and your ability to to just have a good, healthy conversation. And uh, the individuals that we see that tend to have nice 
progress in their careers, the, the ones that tend to get that second and third interview and ultimately get hired. It's the individuals that have strong communication skills, uh, and that always drives those people forward. And then secondary, it, it comes down to technology. You know, are they updated on the latest technology? Can they kind of keep up with the change of pace? And if you could cover off those two things, technology and communication skills, you're always going to be in a position to succeed. Now, the pandemic started what few prioritized previously, flexible work. Is that still a priority for workers? And what are employers saying about that part? Well, yes to your first question. Uh, flexibility is really important to the, to the point that three and four workers cite a flexible work schedule as their top perk that they want in a job, even over and above salary and compensation. So it's really important for people that they have some sort of flexibility in their work structure, you know, whether that's a hybrid schedule, um, you know, six, again, six and 10 workers have shared with us that they would rather stay in a job with flexible work options than accept a position with a higher pay, but rigid in-office requirements. So yeah, it's still a very much a, a hot button. And what about some of the other perks they're looking for? What are those? Yeah, as mentioned earlier, you know, vacation time is always really mm-hmm. important. A uh, strong benefit package is always important. And again, I think that comes kind of full circle almost with inflation being such a hot button topic right now. And it's such a concern for people paying the bills that if their benefit package can cover off some of that, that makes up on the salary side a little bit. Overall, are salaries expected to, to go up in 2024? We think there's going to be a moderate bump in salaries for sure. Again, some of the most recent numbers uh, out there, the unemployment numbers continue to have around 5.5% nationally. Uh, The latest job info we have goes back to August. So the economy added approximately 40,000 positions. So, So we anticipate that the talent in the marketplace will remain tight. That tends to give uh, the talent and the job seeker a little bit more power in the equation, and and thus organizations will definitely need to kind of pay to get the right people on their teams. That's great, Cal. For more information on the Salary Guide findings, where can our listeners find that? Yeah, you could visit us at www.roberthaff.com. After the break, the desperate need for blood and plasma donations. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. We often hear about the desperate need for blood, and according to the Vaughn Plasma Donor Center, the distribution to hospitals is outpacing donations. Jim Lang with How You Can Help. Well, by now, you've probably heard the report in the news that our friends at the Vaughn Plasma Donor Center need donations, and there's actually a pretty critical need for it. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by Michael Belviso, who is part of the Canadian Blood Services, especially at the Vaughn Plasma Donor Center. He's a seasoned medical professional with well over a decade of experience in the pharmaceutical industry, and he joins us today in the feed. Mike, how are you? I am very well, Jim. Thank you for having me on the region here today. Uh, it's really an, appreciate it. Well, it's an absolute pleasure, and, I, and I'm fascinated why the need for plasma. And, and I guess I'm asking the question a lot of listeners are asking, what exactly is plasma? Great question. What is plasma? And it's a question uh, that we receive 
quite frequently from uh, donors coming into our center. But plasma is, plasma is a part of our blood. It's the protein-rich liquid in our blood that helps other blood components circulate throughout our body. So more than half of our blood, about 55%, is plasma. And then the others are comprised of our red blood cells, our white blood cells, and our platelets. So just because I'm, I'm not that at a level of your intelligence, Michael, when it comes to medical things, I go to blood.ca, I book an appointment at the Vaughn Plasma Center. Um, they take a pint or whatever they call it, the, the, the unit of measure of blood, and they take the plasma from the blood? That is correct. So it's, it's very similar to a blood donation. If ah. anybody has ever sat in that chair, um, donating plasma is a lot like donating blood. And, and while you're resting in our extremely comfortable beds, uh, there's a special machine that draws the blood from your arm. What happens is there's a centrifuge in that machine that spins at 7,000 RPMs, and that machine separates your blood out um, from your plasma, and, and we collect that plasma portion, and we return the rest of your blood to you. And what this means is when we return your red blood cells and your platelets, you can actually um, donate more often. And so uh, with plasma, you can donate up to every seven days. I had no idea about that. That's fascinating, Mike. So, uh, And I know one of the things that we've been talking about in our public service announcements about the need for donors is plasma is also used for certain medicines. And I guess that's another question a few listeners have sent me a note about is what exactly does plasma treat in that way? Yeah, fantastic question. So <clears throat> what we do here, everything that is donated at our Vaughn Plasma Donor Center uh, located at 200 Windflower Gate, we make life-saving medications that treat patients with immunodeficiencies, autoimmune disorders, neurological disorders, among many other medical conditions. And I've spoken to countless and countless recipients of um, of of plasma protein products, um, and, and it's just so powerful to listen to their story and dealing with our, our local hospital. So everything that's donated here will go to a, a patient within Canada. We distribute uh, plasma protein products that's actually kept right with our blood products in, in our hospitals. Uh, to, we distribute it to over 730 hospitals and clinics throughout Canada. It is truly life-saving. And we're really in a critical point where we're asking our communities to, to really uh, grab a friend, grab a family member, um, your, your business, big or small, uh, your hockey team, your sports teams, any, any family or friend groups, uh, try to help save lives, walk into our center, donate together, um, and, and really, truly make a difference within uh, within Canada and, and to somebody's life. It is so easy to book your appointment. Go to blood.ca. You can download the Give Blood app or just call 1-888-2-DONATE, 1-888-236-6283. Speaking of Michael Bolviso from the Canadian Blood Services and the Vaughn Plasma Donor Center. Um, and this is the one thing that some people ask, how do I know if I can donate? I'm, I'm, I'm moved by what you're saying. They're listening to this. Like, oh, Michael, I want to help. Can I help? How do we know if you're, you're eligible to give that much-needed life-saving plasma? 
Absolutely great question. How do you know if you're eligible to donate? And there are some individuals who will say, oh, you know, I can't donate because of this or mm. because of that. And that could be true. Uh, the best way that you can find out is to go on to uh, blood.ca and take our eligibility quiz. We have a fantastic website that is very easily and, and it's very convenient uh, to to scroll away and to find that eligibility quiz uh, or walk into one of our centers. We have the greatest staff. We roll out the red carpet for you. The white gloves are on. Ask questions. Come in. Um, we need you, uh, and, and we need you today. The numbers are significant. Three to 400 new donors are needed every month in the Vaughan area alone. One to 200 people need to donate in the next week or so in the Vaughan area. Of course, you heard Mike mention it's at 200 Windflower Gate at the Westridge Shopping Centre beside, uh, beside Mark and Laura's in Woodbridge. So it's very easy to book that appointment, especially as we are into later October. Start thinking about it. Hey, it's not like we can hang out in the summer weather anymore. Make that quick appointment and do it. Um, for someone who's involved in the medical industry as long as you have, why is it that we still need to educate Canadians to make these donations? Is it getting more challenging for you in your position, Mike, to do this? Or has this been something ongoing? You know, I, it, it's a very interesting question. And, you know, we're trying to make it easier for donors to come and walk in. But let's face it, you know, I, I understand that uh, individuals are busy, uh, but when you talk to these patients, when you talk to these recipients, the mothers, the fathers, the, the family members, um, their social circles, when it's truly life-saving for a patient, being a donor is the most noble thing that you can do. And, and, I, and I'm truly, this is an ask, and I thank you for uh, allowing me to spread this message please, please walk into your local donor center. Our Vaughn Plasma Donor Center, like I said, will roll out the red carpet. Um, one of the things that we're making to uh, make it easier for you, walk-ins are available. Um, you can, um, people are, our eligibility criteria is, is getting easier. We're actually, we have a ton of different raffles. We have a Halloween costume contest going on right now. You could win uh, Cineplex tickets with two adult tickets. You can have a nice date night, two drinks, a popcorn. Uh, we have mocktail Mondays, theater Tuesdays, where we'll play a, a movie throughout this, this month of October and Halloween. Waffle Wednesdays, uh, we'll, we'll make you a nice, uh, fresh waffle after your donation. Tiramisu Thursday. Who doesn't like a nice uh, <laughs> slice of tiramisu while you're sitting and donating? And of course, during lunch hour on Fridays, we would love to serve you with pizza and fries on our Friday. So we're really, truly trying to make it um, more convenient for you to come and make all the difference in a patient's life and, and truly save uh, a life by donating uh, blood or plasma. The Plasma Donor Center open Monday to Saturday, 8 a.m. to 3.30, Tuesday to Thursday, 7 to 7.30, and Fridays, 8 to 4.30. So, uh, Mike, someone's listening to this. They're they're inspired. They're going to book their appointment. They're walking in. Um, just give us a ballpark. Uh, they walk in, hey, I want to do this, and there's an open spot. How much time out of their day are they taking to donate this life-saving plasma? Fantastic question, Jim. So uh, the amount of the a lot of time that we uh, would say is put aside about 90 minutes from the time you walk in 
to the time that you walk out with one of our token cookies uh, is about uh, a 90-minute process with the administration portion and the donation portion as well. That's that's a reasonable expectation of your timing. You're only asking, hey, whoever's listening, just try to do this once a month and make a big difference. That's right. And you know what? Unfortunately, uh, we can't watch any of the Blue Jays games no. anymore. No. But if you want to catch the, the first period of the Toronto Maple Leafs game from Tuesday and Thursday, do it while you're donating and, and truly save a life um, within Canada. It's so easy to donate. Blood.ca. Go to the Give Blood app. Call one eight 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 two donate one eight 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 two three six sixty two eighty three, located at two hundred Windflower Gate in Woodbridge, uh, next to Mark and Laura's. Uh, Michael, thank you for you and your staff for everything you're doing. Thank you for educating me and the listeners about the importance of plasma. I know I've learned a lot, and we've heard from a lot of our listeners how much they've learned through the tireless work of you and your staff. It is greatly appreciated. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And and just my, my last message is that, you know, life can change in a matter of seconds. Mm. Uh, and you or someone you love may need blood or plasma urgently. So we are grateful to everyone who has come, who has donated blood or plasma. Um, and we're asking anybody new to please walk through that door, come in, donate, and, and be part of making a difference uh, to a life within Canada. Outstanding. All the best, my friend. Thank you so much. Charities also rely on technology to spread their message and increase donations. Shaliza Back is now with that story. The world around us is rapidly evolving and Canada Helps has released the findings of a nano survey which sheds light on how Canadian charities are embracing digital transformation. Joining me now to discuss this is Nicole Denacy, Senior Manager of Public Relations and Unite for Change at Canada Helps. How are you, Nicole? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me. So right off the bat, tell us about the findings of this survey. Right. So our survey uh, was conducted back in August, and um, the survey really showcased how Canadian charities, we live in a very digital savvy world where, you know, everything is at our fingertips in terms of our phone. Um, But in terms of charities, they're really struggling to sort of get up to speed when it comes to digital transformation in order to help make an even bigger impact. Definitely. And why do you feel it's important for charities to make this kind of shift? I mean, I know a lot of people, businesses are making this shift, but is it especially important for charities? It certainly is. When you think about it, when it comes to technology, technology really gives us the ability to be able to help us elevate our impact, help us, you know, do things faster, for example, help us just do things in an easier way so that we're able to do things uh, faster, quicker, more efficiently. And that isn't isn't different for charities themselves. They are able to do things faster, make a bigger impact. And that's really why it's so critical. And it's interesting you say that just because, you know, some charities don't have all the resources readily available to them. So is this going to be an easy shift for them? Right. It's certainly challenging. So as part of our findings, we actually found that um, insufficient funding is actually the reason why most charities, about 62%, have not invested in digital tools. And most of them just haven't made digital tools a high priority because they have so many other priorities 
um, on the go. So, you know, it is a bit of a challenge, but we want really the call to action for Canadians to be able to support charities that are, uh, you know, support the charities that they care about when it comes to making these digital advancements, investments, because they're able to make an even greater impact. You know, for example, I was at the Global Medic office uh, warehouse in Etobicoke just last week, actually, and they were showcasing to me how their team is leveraging drone technology, just as one example, in order to help when an earthquake strikes. Uh, you know, these drones are used uh, in order to find individuals who are trapped under rubble. There's other technology that's being leveraged in terms of AI technology in order to understand, you know, conversations that people are having that, you know, may need support. There's so many advancements that charities are able to leverage in order to make an even bigger difference. So many, so many. I mean, just that talk about AI is just like, it's a little scary, but at the same time, I feel like it could be really helpful for some charities. You know, I think it's potentially scary because there's so much that's new to it for so many of us. But when you really get into it, you know, there's so many conversations that are taking place when it comes to AI. And I think at the end of the day, it will just help make Canadian charities when they're able to use it properly. And, you know, of course, ethically and transparently, it'll be they'll be able to make an even greater impact when leveraging it in ways that will help. Definitely. And what can Canadians do to help charities get to that spot? Because you mentioned insufficient funding and lack of investment and things like that. What can we do to help? Mm -hmm. That's the big question. So we're about to get into the holiday season, of course. Uh, Canadian charities raise the most in November and December. And sometimes when Canadians are ready to go and make a donation to their favorite charity, they rightly ask really great questions from the charity in order to ask where their dollars are going to. And sometimes charities are perhaps a little bit hesitant to tell donors, for example, that they are making these digital investments. But You know, really what we want to say is that when Canadians are hearing that charities are leveraging these digital technologies, that they celebrate them, that they support them, um, that they don't sort of, um, you know, that they're they're really supporting them at the end of the day with their dollars and, uh, you know, if they're able to support them with their time, dollars, voice, etc., Definitely. And what do you feel like once we get there, once we get to that good place, will things be easier to make donations to keep in touch with with charities and things like that? Well, that's really what we do at Canada Helps. Our organization, we've been around for the last 23 years. And when you visit CanadaHelps.org, you can browse more than 86,000 registered charities and you can give online to these organizations in a number of different ways, whether it's a one-time donation, monthly donation, you can launch a fundraiser quite easily, give a gift card, donate securities, cryptocurrency, you know, you name it really. Um, and you're able to support those organizations online through Canada Helps. Well, that is what is most important right now. As you mentioned, Nicole, we're heading into the holiday season and, you know, we do need to really think of those who are less fortunate, including the charity organizations themselves who work so hard for other people. And as you mentioned, sometimes the resources just aren't available to them. Right, and we conducted a survey also back uh, earlier this year where we asked Canadians, in the next six months, will you be turning to registered charities in order to meet essential needs such as food and shelter? At In May, that number was 23% of Canadians expecting to turn to charitable services 
to meet those basic needs. And we actually, when we ask them, you know, looking forward six months into the future, do you see yourself needing to turn to those organizations, you know, within the next half a year or so? And that number went up to 26% of Canadians. So we're talking about one in four Canadians turning to charities for essential services. So really, you know, let that sink in. Um, And that's why it's so critical this holiday season. Definitely, definitely something we needed to hear. Nicole Danessi, thank you so much for joining me. And if our listeners want to get some more information, where can they go? They can go to CanadaHelps.org where you can find one of 86,000 charities that you can support. Amazing. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.